up, everybody? Welcome to the Leadership Podcast, the podcast where we talk to people who are good at what they do to inspire leaders to get better. Folks, my name is Jared Hogue. I'm going to be your solo host today. My good friend, my best friend, Roman Johnson, is actually wrapping up the Seeds Conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so he is not joining us today, but uh, we've still got a phenomenal interview for you here. We're well into the 70s here. I believe this is episode 71, so we've got 70 episodes to precede this. Some amazing, amazing guests have stop by to share with us people that are extremely good at what they do to inspire us to get better and I know it has made a tremendous difference with me and I hope you're getting a lot out of this and if you are uh, I I just want to say thanks to all of you out there that are leaving reviews out on iTunes and Google Play Uh, we really appreciate that we we appreciate you taking the time to do that and, and leave your feedback And as always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can hit us up on social media at creative underscore sheep, or you can email me direct, jared at creativesheep.org. Again, that's jared at creativesheep.org. Would love to hear from you. Folks, we've got a phenomenal interview for you today here on episode 71 of the Leadership Podcast. I'm joined today with Eric Lawson. Eric is the pastor of Element Church uh, near St. Louis, Missouri. And this one is extra special to me because I actually interned for Pastor Eric for two years. Uh, When I first moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, he was one of the youth pastors at 180, the youth ministry of Church on the Move. And and, uh, he played a tremendous uh, tremendous part in my growth as a leader and teaching me and being patient with me and showing me how to grow, not just as a leader, but as a a person, as a future husband, um, as a dad. I just have the utmost respect for Pastor Eric Lawson, and I'm so excited for his conversation today, and we're talking about uh, his journey in church planting. Uh, Element Church is just exploding these days, Um, but we're going to talk like the early parts of Element Church and how he got it going and things like that. So without further ado, let's get to today's conversation with Pastor Eric Lawson. Well, Pastor Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's a man, what an honor to have you on here. Well, Jared, I appreciate the honor, and uh, I'm just excited to be able to spend some time with you and uh, your great group of listeners and to talk uh, our favorite subject, and that's church, local church, and, and church leadership. Absolutely. Now, for those of you out there listening, I have to point out real quick that Pastor Eric is is someone that actually, uh, he changed my life in a pretty big way. I uh, I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma in 2001 and actually had the pleasure of interning under Pastor Eric at uh, 180, the youth ministry of Church on the Move. And uh, I don't even know if I've ever got to tell you this, Pastor Eric, but you had a, have had a tremendous impact on who I am today. You really pushed me onto a course that I I wasn't expecting when I came and, and interned at 180. And so wow, publicly, you. I just want to say thank you for, for what you've invested into my life. So this is an extra special interview for me. I just had to say well, that awesome. while, as Thank we're getting you. started. I'm honored by that. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, real proud of you and, and uh, what you're doing for God. And uh, just keep up the great work, man. So proud of you. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. So for those those folks out there listening, uh, give us a little backstory, how you got where you are today and what you're doing today. Sure. So uh, I got saved at 15 years of age, and I grew up in Northern California, started watching these videos called Gospel Bill and Fire by Night, which came out of Church on the Move. It was a church that had just started. 
our family went out and visited on vacation and we fell in love with it. My parents sold their company, their business, and we moved all the way across the country. They had no job, no place to live, but we knew we were supposed to go be a part of this church uh, that was starting from the ground up and got involved in leadership, volunteering, kids ministry, bus ministry, uh, any place that they would accept my volunteer application. I plugged in, was going to Bible school, and it really just forever changed the course of my life. Uh, Moved into a a staff position, ultimately ended in youth ministry, and ended up 14 years on staff at Church on the Move, and had the privilege of just learning under Pastor Willie George uh, leadership and excellence and how to build a a good life-giving church. And uh, when I left uh, there, I was the senior youth pastor of 180. And at that point, we had about 3,000 students in the youth ministry, had some incredible interns like yourself that helped build that uh, youth ministry to be what it was. And then uh, during about 24, 25, I really felt God's call to one day plant and pastor a church. And so uh, in my mid-20s, I got out a manila folder and I titled it, Uh, what I will do and won't do when I pastor. And just the journey of serving another man's vision, God would kind of help clarify what he's calling me to be as a leader, the type of church that we would one day create. And so at about 35, um, I was feeling the the pull to to plant, and Pastor George had really felt that same confirmation. So he he blessed us and helped helped us uh, move to St. Louis, uh, where we planted Element Church 11 years ago, and we just celebrated 11 years uh, last uh, Jan- this last January, and we're averaging 3,500 people in weekend attendance. I've seen you know, really hundreds of people every every year, actually several thousand people every year, giving their life to Christ, and uh, have a staff of about 43, 44 right now, and um, love just. Loving uh, reaching people and building lives. Man, that's incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. I I actually remember that folder. I remember I I had one yeah. of my tasks was I got uh-huh. to do the do the copies to put into your resource library. And I remember seeing mm-hmm. that folder. Um, and yeah, I remember it. I've, it was pretty thick. <laughs> it really was. I think it was the thickest one in the entire. You had two file cabinets yeah. at that time, and that was the thickest yeah. one in there. That's amazing. That is amazing. Um, what good grief. Like there's so many, so many things I want to tackle here. And one of these, I'm going to go off script if it's okay with you real quick. There's a quote. Um, Craig Rochelle says this, that one of his mentors early on, um, and I specifically want to ask this because of the point you're at in your church. Um, Mm -hmm. and I've heard Bill Gates say the same thing that you will, you will dramatically under or overestimate what you can do in a year but dramatically underestimate what you can do in 10. I hope I just said that yeah. correct. Did, did, would you agree it with that? It sounds right. <laughs> I, I've, heard, I've heard those same statements, and honestly, I do agree. Um, before I started Element Church, as a youth pastor, I was the world's greatest senior pastor. I knew that I would just knock it out of the park. We would have conferences probably about 18 months into it. People would come from all over the world to hear what in the world happened here in St. Louis, uh, only to find out God knows what I need more than what I think I need. And uh, what I actually needed was supernatural lack of growth, because uh, the worst thing that actually would have happened to me is us explosive growth would have been detrimental to really the most important part of a leader, and that's their character. And what God needed to do in me was to dig deeper down into my character so that 
when he brings the growth, we could sustain it. And one of the prayers I prayed early on, uh, and I was unaware of the impact this prayer would have, and that is God never promote me beyond what my character can sustain. And so we didn't grow real rapidly at the start. You know, we grew well, but not as rapidly as I expected, but that was all uh, by God's divine design. And uh, so, yes, I agree with that statement. And then I think as God can trust us, as our character can sustain it, as we've gotten some of those important lessons under our belt, then God can trust us with more. And then you begin to see uh, the momentum and the compounding uh, of of growth. Uh, but I get nervous if I see a young guy or a young church planner grow too fast because you can start to see it maybe outpace their character. Mm. And uh, I'd rather be in this for the marathon. I'd rather finish strong. I'd rather hear well done versus well started, but you didn't finish. Wow. That's so good. And, and I, I kind of want to keep chasing this real quick. And the, the pre, the sure. pre-call before the interview, one of the things we were talking about, we were actually kind of catching up and talking about families. And um, one of the questions I asked you was, does it, did in some ways, did it feel like uh, planting this church was almost like giving birth to your fourth child? And I thought your response yeah, and, was fascinating. Well, yeah, thank you for that. And I actually uh, left out uh, really the most important part of my story, and that is I'm an overachiever. I married a far better looking woman than I deserve. <laughs> uh, we just celebrated 22 years of marriage uh, to my lovely wife, Christy. And then uh, we have three beautiful children, uh, Courtney and Brooke, 21 years of age, serving God. And then Wesley, 15 years of age, and he, he's serving God and feels called into ministry. So you know, birthing a church is like um, birthing a child. And so when you look at the whole conception process and uh, really the parallels just, you know, birthing a church, first is the pregnancy stage. God impregnates us with his vision for the church that he's wanting to birth through us. And it's so important that that pregnancy is taken to full term. And I've seen a lot of young people who are passionate and they feel pregnant with a vision, uh, give birth too soon. They didn't allow that vision to, to mature and maturate with inside of them. And just because you feel called and just because you have a vision doesn't necessarily mean it's for right now. There's often a pregnancy stage and it's very uncomfortable. And when you look at, you know, a woman that's pregnant and any of our listeners who've ever given birth, you know, you know, it's uncomfortable and, and then and, and you, you lose sleep at night and it, it's kind of hard to do anything else. And I know for me, there was this long period of about two years where I really began to feel the pregnancy of the vision for launching Element Church. And I had some multiple opportunities to launch prematurely, and I would have really hindered what God wanted to do. I think that's really important where you as leaders are able to be honest with leaders that are above you. If you're in that type of environment where you have a, a pastor or leaders that you can trust and process your vision, because you have to be able to trust their perception of timing. And fortunately, I was able to do that with a few leaders in my life, and it prevented me from uh, birthing this vision too soon. Mm. Man, that's really good. You know, I remember when you were at Church on the Move, you made a comment, I, I want to say it was maybe like an intern class or something that you might have done. I, I don't remember the exact context, but we were talking and you you made the comment that like being at a place like Church on the Move, which is a, a fairly sizable church, 
Um, that, yeah. that when you're on staff at a church like that, it's like you're, you're like driving behind a Mack truck and that mm-hmm. basically like pastor George had gone ahead and kind of pioneered and plowed this, this path, uh, that we're following behind. And then when you leave that, that it's like pulling out from behind this Mack truck and now you're getting smacked by the wind and all the bugs and everything yeah. is just hitting you versus the protection that you had in front of you. And now that you're on the other side of this, and to some degree, you know, leaving the security to go do your own thing, what was that like for you? Like when you, when you made that decision, when you had that conversation with Pastor George, like then what, (laughs) what was it, what was it like for you? Yeah. First, I want to say that's probably one of the most accurate statements I've ever made. And that is, it really is. Uh, when you're behind a great leader who's driving and, and, and momentum, it's easy to think, hey, man, this, this thing's doing so well because of me. And um, I even, in my naivety, just thought, hey, some of the success of 180 was because I'm a good preacher, I'm talented, I'm creative. And I underestimated how much of our success was actually because I was behind a bigger leader who was really creating the momentum for us, which was Pastor George. So when I stepped out from behind that, I really began to feel that, hey, there is nobody blazing the trail for me. There is nobody out here taking the hits and taking the shots. It's now me. And so I I really felt the weight of that. And so I have that same conversation with, you know, uh, young pastors on my staff now, because as they start feeling called to, to pastor and to plant, I remind them that it's it's one thing to stand next to the leader and think that because I'm standing next to them, I'm carrying the same weight that they are. And until you're the leader, until you're the church planter, until you're the senior pastor, uh, you really fully don't know the weight of that chair and the the spiritual battles that go with it. And uh, new level, new devil. And I, I just helped plant one of our spiritual sons of the house. He was with me five years. He was our youth pastor for a season and then was on my executive lead team. And we groomed him for five years to help plant him. And Aaron's going to do a great job in San Antonio, Texas. Um, but he just hit the ground and he just told me, he goes, Pastor, he goes, you've told me this over and over that I won't understand how hard it is until I get there. And he goes, I didn't believe you. <laughs> and now I know you're right. And now I get it. <laughs> and so, uh, he, he's now, you know, working through that of realizing he's the guy and some of the weight that he thought he could carry, he was actually just getting the benefits of me carrying it for him. Wow. You know, I, I, <laughs> I keep chasing these tangents because as you're talking, more and more questions are popping up in my mind. You know, as you know, it's a gift I have. I leave people <laughs> with more questions than answers by the time I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> um, but early on, and even now, as the senior leader, because this is something I've been hearing a lot, is that until you're in that seat, and I, I've got to be honest, I've had those same thoughts the the thoughts that you describe that some of the success that we've had that that's that's been because of me, and mm-hmm. you know, as as a, somebody who's in a second chair. Um, so to speak, what, as the senior leader, like early on in a church plant, and then really all through these past 11 years, what is it that, like, the, the one or two things, like, obviously you need people that are going to work hard, that are going to, they're going to get on board with the vision, but what would you say, especially early on in the process, that 
you needed from the people that were on your launch team, for those people that moved there with you, that came on board and said, Pastor Eric, we're going to help you do this. What, what would you say you needed the most from them? Uh, Aaron and hers, those that come alongside and lift Moses' hands. And the picture is, uh, as long as Moses' hands were lifted towards heaven, lifted in surrender, it's a picture of prayer, uh, the battle in the valley by Joshua, who's a picture of Jesus, is always won. And so when his hands got tired, the battle uh, turned the tide. And so as a leader, it's the weight of having to keep your hands up. It's the weight of having to just stay surrendered. It's the weight that you carry of keeping things up. And so it's people coming alongside that know how to lift your hands. I have found that there are people who want to hang on your hands versus lift them, that they are the weight of ministry sometimes. Uh, because they're always showing up with problems without solutions. They're showing up, you know, that they think their spiritual gift is to point out everything wrong in the church. And just know if you're listening and serving uh, a pastor or serving somebody in a church plant, know this, they know more about what's wrong with themselves and the church than you do. What they need are encouragers. What they need are lifters. They need cheerleaders. They need people to come along and believe in them because half the battle of leadership is struggling to believe in yourself because there's a hell out there that's trying to convince them they're not worthy to do this and they're out of their minds for doing this. And so don't come along and reinforce that. So it's not that you can't be honest. It's not that you can't say, hey, I have some ideas. I have some suggestions. Hey, we can improve this and tweak that. But you be a solution. You bring answers versus just a bunch of problems and questions. So I think leaders that come along and lift, I think that's a critical part. And then uh, people who are racehorses, uh, I think, are are real important, and especially in those early stages. You know, I, I told my team, look, guys, I would I would rather have to rein you in and say slow down than me to have to keep cracking the whip to say, come on, let's go, let's get this done. And so at my table, I'm having racehorses. And so if you want to get promoted and you're part of a church plant, one of the fastest ways to maybe end up in a paid position in ministry is to be irreplaceable because you're you're producing, you're getting it done, and don't aim for perfection because it doesn't exist, but just get it done. Man, that's some really good stuff. So, and we could go on for forty five minutes just on that. <laughs> yeah, there's a pretty hefty list of I think what every pastor wants in in, in a team. Yeah, you know, if, if you've got anything else you want to share on this, let's keep going because you're dropping some gold right now. I'm totally down to keep going in this direction. If if you've got some other thoughts, well, third one would be this, and I, then we could probably move on. And that is, it's a privilege to get close to what I describe as the spiritual nakedness of your pastor, of your leader, because every leader is flawed. God loves to use broken people. It's like the jars of clay that that God told Gideon that was going to be part of the battle and the victory. He said, put the light and the lamp in the jar, and then you're going to break it, and then you're going to shout, sort of the Lord and Gideon, we are the jar of clay. It's in our brokenness that the light of Jesus shines through, and at the end of the day, God gets all the glory. And so as you get close to your leader, you're going to find out that knight in shining armor was really nothing more than Shrek, and you're going to see the chinks, you're going to see the rust, you're going to see the ogre days, and it's how you manage that in your heart. 
And so are you someone who covers your leader's flaws or are you someone who exposes your leader's flaws? Now, I'm not talking about blatant sin. I'm not talking about some immorality issue. I'm just talking about the general weaknesses every leader has, and we all have them. God gave your leader strength on the other side of every God-given strength. There's a God-given weakness. You're there to cover the weakness. Uh, I surround myself with a team that covers my weakness. I hire for my weaknesses. One of the temptations of a leader who's standing next to their leader as they see their weaknesses, the challenge is this. The temptation is to judge your strengths against your leader's weakness. Well, remember, you're there because they knew they had a weakness and they saw your strength and they asked you to come and be a part of that. You'll get a critical spirit if you begin to judge your strength against your leader's weakness. Why not turn that around and judge your weakness against your leader's strength? And that might put a little more humility back into place. Mm. So as you get closer, proximity is a privilege. And you, you have to know how to manage that in your heart. So Noah had made a mistake. He had gotten drunk in his tent after the flood. Because most of our failures tend to be after our greatest successes, not in the middle of our battles. It's in our prosperity, and it's in our ease, and that's what we see with Noah. So one of his sons uh, saw that his father had – you know, his fa- the Bible says that he saw his father's nakedness, and he went out and began to talk about it. He went out and exposed it. The two worthy sons or honorable sons walked in backwards, and they covered it. Which type of leader are you? When there's flaws in another staff member, you know, maybe you begin to see weaknesses in your pastor's leadership. Maybe it's their organization. Maybe they aren't the greatest managers of, of finances. Maybe they aren't the greatest at planning. Maybe they're not the greatest communicator, strategist, whatever. Do you expose that, or are you somebody who knows how to cover it? Yeah, if you don't mind, how do we? Let's talk about that a little further. So, how how as the second chair, or the support staff. How do we go about covering it versus exposing it? How do we have that honest conversation, but have it in such a way where we are trying to help and not be more of a hindrance to what's going on? So the culture that we create in our staff, and and every church is different, every culture is different, but the culture we create within our staff is with my lead team, I meet with them on a weekly basis. You know, I can lead the entire church from that table. All the church is represented at that table through my lead team. The culture is we can talk about anything you want to talk about inside of that room. So in that room, I do not put yes people. If you're just a yes person and there you're just there to go mm, faster, you're the smartest, the best, you're not going to be in that room because you're dangerous. It's dangerous to surround yourself with yes people. Everybody in that table knows, hey, this is where, you know, we're going to be honest. This is where you can share your feelings. This is where you can talk about concerns. And so in that room, we can talk about, you know, hey, we made a mistake here. You know, I I don't know, you know, about this or why do we do this? This is where we talk about it. And so it's a safe place. When we walk outside of that room, we're a united team, we're a united front. And so when when a leader's flaws or mistakes begin to surface, and, and maybe we just made a bad decision, we made a bad call, and we shouldn't have changed that service time, or we shouldn't have launched that ministry just now, or you know that was a really dumb thing that Pastor said in the middle of his message. When we go out of that room, it's how we navigate those conversations among one another, and how we manage those conversations with other people. Most people are smart enough to see the mistakes that that their pastor or their leader makes. It's just simply knowing how to navigate that conversation uh, where you you don't throw your pastor or another staff member under the bus, but you can kind of take that and turn it around 
and, and salvage it. So um, let's say somebody, you know, says, you know, pastor, he's just, you know, he doesn't seem real personable. So, you know, that's actually something I've been accused of uh, many times, and it's not news to me. I'm a high DC personality. I, I'm not real high eye, so I'm, I'm not going to spend two hours hanging out in somebody's living room, making them feel like I'm their best friend. It's not my strength or my gift mix or actually my calling. So uh, what my team has learned to do is to know how to reflect my heart. So we use the term reflect and protect. So what that person is is feeling is, man, I I don't feel that pastor really cares about me. I I don't really feel that I'm noticed. And and everybody wants to feel needed. Everybody wants to feel known. Craig Rochelle says it real well. He says, people join your church when you're small because they feel needed and known. People leave your church when you get big because they no longer feel needed and known. So it's not a bad thing. It's just helping that person understand this is not necessarily what pastor's ever going to be able to meet for you. So in that conversation, they might simply just say, hey, you know what? I've gotten to spend some time with, with Pastor Eric, and you know, here, let me tell you his heart. Man, he, he one of the things he loves to do is he loves to spend time in prayer. So if they know that if I know that person, they might say something like this. You know, in fact, I've heard Pastor, you know, say such and such about you in staff meeting and something great he thought about you. Oh wow, wow. You know, so try to take, you know, my heart and translate it into a conversation. I can't have all those conversations one on one. So listen for my heart, reflect my heart, reassure them. You know, one of the things that, you know, a shepherd does uh is is the primary purpose is he helps feed the flock. Do you feel fed here at church? Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you tell that pastor puts a lot of time into that message every single week? Do you leave disappointed on the one? Oh, man, I know I get fed. See, that's pastor loving you. He loves you enough to say no to other things so he can do his primary thing, which is to feed you well. Oh, well, that's good. And so protect and reflect. And every situation is different. And, and part of the skill of leadership is how can you take a difficult situation and salvage it and reflect the heart of the house. Wow. That's so good. So now kind of shifting gears here back to when you were planting the church, what made you pick St. Louis? I I was reading an article online and according to Forbes, St. Louis is the number two most dangerous city in the U S what, what, what led you there? Um, so I go, why not St. Louis? (laughs) Um, that statistic's a little misleading, and, and I, I've seen that statistic many different places as well. There's a part of St. Louis that's predominantly uh, that category, and that would be East St. Louis. Mm-hmm. We're actually on the far end, about an hour away from that, in the suburb uh, of West St. Louis. So in our area, crime rate's real low. But you know, to me, I looked at St. Louis, and it met a lot of the criteria of what I had been asking God and talking with God about for the last decade prior to planting of what I felt would be the right fit for me. And uh, one of the things I had in my heart is I felt God wired me for big, big city, big community, big impact, ultimately being able to build a large church. So I I wanted a big city. I liked the Midwest. I've traveled all over uh, the world speaking at different places. And what really always seems right and comfortable to me, for me, it was Midwest. I wanted to raise my family in the Midwest. And then I wanted accessibility. Uh, you know, I felt that feel that one day, um, you know, our church is to be able to help equip other churches. Uh, and so we want to be accessible, you know, for people to be able to get to us easily. 
And uh, I also wanted to be a church that was meeting the unique need in the city. I just didn't want to be one of 50 churches that were basically doing the same thing. Mm. And so when we look at St. Louis, um, it met all that criteria. It's about two and a half million people in the total metro area. There's not an element church here. There's great churches, and I'm friends with a lot of the great churches here. But we are compliment, we complement what the body of Christ is here. We aren't competing, so to speak. And so we add value, I think, and just the uniqueness of Element Church and our flavor and how we do church. So we added value. Um, and it's accessible. You know, it's a large airport. It's easy to get in and out of. It's in the middle of the country. So you can pretty much get to either coast, you know, uh, pretty quickly. And it's Midwest and had good Midwest values. Gotcha. Gotcha. So with, with, uh, and it's like marriage, God blinds your eyes. <laughs> so you never fully know what you're getting into. <laughs> um, so I, I, real quick too, before we, we dive into the rest of this, I, I'm curious, I heard Perry Noble make a comment one time and I thought it was fascinating. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and I know you've, you've, you, you've not done the church planning thing multiple times. Thankfully it, it's gone well for you mm-hmm. in the time that you did it. Um, I've heard different people say that, you know, certain parts of the country are harder to plant than other parts of the country. And I heard Perry Noble say one time, like, no, church planting is hard. It doesn't matter where you are. Church planting is just hard. Um, Where where do you fall in that spectrum? Do you think it's more difficult certain places than other places or is just you're you're starting from something from scratch? Therefore, it's going to be difficult. So I'm, I'm, I'm yes and no. Okay. So I completely agree that church planting is just hard. Pastoring is just hard. Statistics say more pastors are leaving ministry than entering ministry. So yes, it's just hard. If it wasn't hard, everybody would do it. So yes, it's hard. I do believe that there are harder areas than others. And I think it's naive for somebody to say to a church planter, hey, your area isn't any harder than my area. I think there's unique battles. So a Bible Belt, and if you look at the statistics on the, the top 100 largest churches, it's not a coincidence that many of them and more of them than not are in Bible Bible Belt areas. So the temptation, though, is for somebody like us. We're not in a Bible Belt area. Uh, So for us, early on, I would get discouraged because I'm fighting these unique battles. We're growing slower, but we're doing everything everybody else is doing. Why are we growing slower? To get discouraged. And and I was tempted to use as a cop-out, well, it's just harder here. The truth is we have some unique battles that they might not have in the Bible Belt. Now, in the Bible Belt, they also have some unique challenges that we don't have in a non-Bible Belt. It's hard everywhere. Some places it's harder to grow faster, but it doesn't mean you can't grow. So I think you have to just simply adjust your expectations to go. We might not grow as fast as Birmingham, Alabama, where the city is the most churched city in America with 72% church attendance. Mm. And it's okay. The danger is, and I fell into this, and that is I'm measuring my success by the rate of our growth compared to other people's growth. And that's where Satan begins to beat us up, get us discouraged, is the comparison that happens. And when I start comparing, it's comparison, and it always leads to sin, the sin of discouragement and self-doubt and self-pity. And so I just had to learn to take my eyes off you know, what everybody else is doing. And so I really stopped reading the 100 fastest growing churches. Hmm. 
uh, even though we were in there for, for six years, we just stopped reporting our numbers. I just stopped looking because our success is not based on how fast we're growing compared to other people. Success at the end of the day is, did I obey Jesus? And he is measuring the quality, not just the quantity. Quantity matters. Numbers matter. But yet at the end of the day, you can be big and unhealthy and you can be small and healthy. You can be big and healthy and you can be small and unhealthy. So I shifted my focus and definition of success to be more about obedience and building something that was healthy and honored God and people. I love that. That's that's so good. So now look now that you're 11 years into this, looking back, what are what are and granted, I'm sure there are many things that you can point to. I don't want to try to uh, boil this down to, to an oversimplification, but what are some things that you guys did that have contributed in a great way to the growth of your church, uh, especially early on? Yeah. So uh, the temptation is to want to create, you know, waves that bring growth. Uh, and I grew up in Northern California. So I had a little bit of a knowledge of surfing, even though I never really surfed, had a lot of friends that did. And the analogy for me is as a surfer, you don't have to go out and create waves. You just simply find them and ride them. There are natural waves built into our culture that you just need to know how to grab your board and ride the momentum of those waves. So what we look at is not creating uh, the energy and the momentum. We just simply look to harness it and use it. So for us, we use a term called mavericks because there's those just bigger waves. And you want to get on top of that bigger wave because you're going to get a lot more excitement and momentum out of that bigger, bigger wave, that maverick. So for us, we just have identified what our mavericks are, those big waves that bring growth already built into the culture. So our flow is... January is our single greatest wave of bringing people into the church because in January, everybody's looking at their New Year's resolutions. They're taking inventory of their life. Uh, December is in, in November are the highest rates of suicide. More people commit suicide in November and December than in the first 10 months combined. So there's a lot of people going through depression at the end of the year. And so when they go to make a resolution like, I need to get my life changed, I heard church can help, I'm going to give it a shot. What I found is January people, you have a higher rate of retention out of people out of January for us than any other time of the year. So we put a ton of energy, a ton of momentum into reaching the January crowd. Then we kind of create a, we allow a natural dip. We create some felt needs. We're going to use February for the relationship felt needs. January, we're always targeting, you know, the new you, improved you, fresh start type messages. And then uh, in, in March, we tend to go into a little bit more of a, a discipleship, a little bit Bible-based, then we'll lead into some type of evangelism to ride that next wave. So we're going to get that next wave, which is Easter. Uh, most churches know that, and uh, we're going to uh, grab Easter. Then we're going to kind of come back out of that and, and just you know ride the – kind of take the lull of, okay, we're going to gather, we're going to galvanize, we're going to kind of disciple the fruit that just came in. Then back to school is the next wave that we really begin to ride. We try to start to create, for us, July is an upside. So we'll start getting the crest of the wave in July. So we kind of create momentum in July. We're going to do some like church on-site picnics. We might do a movie night after a Saturday night service, um, some, some free events or at the movies type events. Then uh, back to school. 
Then the next one for us is going to be our Christmas. And so our Christmas is for us, it's a big production. It's a, it's a big outreach. So it's knowing how to harness the momentum of your, of your calendar. The second aspect of that is when you're harnessing that momentum, it's giving people a reason to invite and giving them the tools to invite. So we put a lot of thought into why would our people want to invite lost, dechurched, unchurched, uh, transitional church people to this event. So we are targeting a felt need. We're going to be creative in the branding and the packaging. And our, we found, at least within our area and context, people get excited about creative inviters. Early on, uh, we wanted to distinguish ourselves. So we did a lot of things creatively with our inviters. So uh, one Christmas, we did a series called A New View of Christmas. And uh, we had went out and bought a bunch of those old-fashioned 70s viewfinders. And uh, you hold it up to your face and you, you know, pull it down and, you know, kind of the the viewfinder spins around. Mm -hmm. Well, we had those custom made and we put our whole invite inside that viewfinder. So our whole advertisement for our Christmas production and the petting zoo and what was going on with the kids ministry and the services and the free stuff was all on that viewfinder. Well, man, those things just went like the first weekend and people were passing them around and it was just a hot item. Then uh, for Easter, one Easter, we did uh, Snapshots of the Savior and uh, stole the title from Ed Young and just kind of rebranded it and packaged it, elementized it. But we bought these, uh, like the 35-millimeter film strips. You don't really see it much anymore because we all have our iPhones. But uh, we got the little canisters, and we made our own inserts uh, that mimicked a film strip. And so the invite was actually in the little 35-millimeter canister. And you would hand it to somebody, they'd open it up, and they'd pull out that strip, and it gave the whole, you know, all the invites, all the marketing was on that. And it was just creative, it was catchy. And so we worked hard to come up with just creative invites. Our people just love to pass those out, and, and that's really created a lot of momentum for us. Wow. So we're riding the natural waves, giving people a reason to invite. I always usually teach them how to invite uh, leading up to it and give them the tools to invite. Very cool. So I I love that. I think both of those, the viewfinder and the thirty five millimeter film, that both of those are amazing. Um, how how does that work when first planting and on a very shoestring budget? What what kind of things did you guys do back then to still leverage creativity, but to still kind of have that punch out in the community? Um, you know, we were on a shoestring budget, and so uh, we were able to, to, to do those creatively. Uh, it's like a home budget, honestly. It's, it's, it's saying no to something so you can say mm. yes to something else. Gotcha. So gotcha. we just simply found uh, where we could say no so we could say yes to this. Now, gotcha. we didn't do it all the time, and that's the mistake a lot of people make because they mm. feel like every series has to be a home run. No, it doesn't. You're going to kill yourself, and you're going to go broke. It also becomes white noise to people if every time, hey, you got to bring your friends to this series, the next series, you got to bring your friends to this series. After a while, they stop listening. Mm. So it's like an EKG monitor. There's up, there's down, there's up, there's down. That's the sign of healthy. So we're going to go up as a church. Then we're going to breathe. We're going to be able to come back down. We're going to go back up. We're going to breathe and we're going to come back down. Anything that's flatlined is dead. You could be flatlined and you could be full tilt, but if you never know how to come down with your team, with your energy, you don't know how to rest, you don't know how to hit a valley, you're dead. You're about to be dead. You're going to burn your people out and burn your budget out. So it's being okay with valleys and peaks and just knowing that's ministry. Yeah. 
you know, in through this process, one thing I think that's so fascinating is, like you said, you're 11 years into this. You've got two daughters that are that are 21. One's about to get married. One is is serving our country, and uh, and then you've got a 15 year old son. All of them in love with Jesus. All of them with a heart for ministry. How? What did you do? I mean, because I, I feel like that with the demands of starting your own organization, let alone a church, can be can pull so greatly on you. What did you do to keep them connected? To keep them? It sounds like you guys have a great family. That that that, like I said, they still love God. Like, what did you do? Well, uh, first, let me just say I made a lot of mistakes. There is no perfect parent. And, um, you know, I, I think if you do enough of the right things, God's grace is big enough to cover some of the wrong things. Mm-hmm. And so first to say we aren't perfect. We've made a lot of mistakes. I think it's just getting the few really essential things right. One of the first things for me was my wife and I just determined this. We will not sacrifice our marriage and our children for the church. It doesn't matter if we win the whole world and lose our children. We're not going to do that. So I said, I'd rather win my children and have a small church than have a big church and lose my kids. So we just determined that priority up front. And once you got that set, that my family is not an option to sacrifice, my marriage is not an option to sacrifice, then you begin to prioritize around that. Because in order to really have a healthy marriage, to have a healthy family, you're going to have to know how to say, say no to a lot of things. Just because it's an opportunity doesn't mean it's God and doesn't mean it's a good thing. So it's really saying no to good things so I can say yes to all the God things. And so within our church from day one, I created a culture that was, I make this statement all the time, and and, and you're, the, the pulpit is the rudder, is the steering wheel to the ship. And what you want in the pews, you have to preach from the pulpit. And so what I wanted was a family focused culture of healthy marriages and healthy children. And so when we preach that and we do any kind of marriage series, any kind of relationship series, parenting, I would continually say the greatest sermon I will ever preach in this church is number one, my marriage, and number two, my children. It's not what comes out of my lips, but it's what you see me living with my life. And so I would adjust expectations from the pulpit every single year at multiple points and just letting them know the greatest thing I can do for you is be a husband and to be a good father. And so with that, I would say there's going to be things that people ask me to do that as much as I would love to do it, I'm not going to be able to. That sometimes my gift to you is no. So I can say yes to my marriage and yes to my family. So I focused on what are the most important things that I could do? What are really only the things I should be doing? And from day one, I built that into my culture as much as possible. And so I just determined the things I need to be doing. Number one, I'm, I'm the, really the captain of the ship. And, and Robert Morris made a great statement. He said, it's more important that my face is in front of God's face than your face, speaking to his church. And so I just determined if I'm going to captain the ship, I need to be in central command, getting the orders from Jesus, and I need to see him more than I see anybody else. Second thing for me was culture. Only the senior pastor can really create culture. Everybody else is a carrier of the culture, or they're a reflection of the culture, or they're making the culture sicker. But at the end of the day, culture comes from the top down. So uh, I didn't understand the value of culture. I made a lot of missteps with culture. We can talk about that if you want later. But um, 
culture. So I realized one of the primary roles I have is to set the culture, create the culture. The third thing is this, is a coach, that I'm to be uh, really a coach to my leadership and a coach to the team. I call it this really to my any of my key staff coming on. I tell them this, I'm your pastor first, I'm your boss second. And so I can't pastor everybody in the church, but I'm going to pastor you. I'm going to pastor your soul, your head, hands, and heart, and I'm going to pastor your marriage. Because if you're succeeding, the ministry succeeding. Healthy sheep reproduce. So I'm just going to be a pastor. I'm going to coach. A third of my calendar is set up to where I'm coaching leaders, pastoring leaders, pouring into leaders. And the fourth thing is communicate. I'm the chief communicator, so I preach about 35 weekends a year. And within coaching, I'm raising up other communicators, and that's one of my my key goals is to continually work myself out of the job and raise up other great leaders. So with that, I'll tell you what I decided that I was not, and this is where a lot of pastors get bogged down and sacrifice families, is that I'm not a counselor. So I would tell our church regularly, I'm not here as your counselor. I'm not going to be doing the counseling. I don't do the weddings. I don't do the funerals, and I don't do the counseling. I have a great team of gifted people that that's what they do. And they're gifted to do it. They're equipped to do it. And the four things I'm going to do for you is this. That's my gift to you. And just know not everybody's going to like it. And sometimes church growth first comes from church subtraction. Hmm. And it's okay. And so just uh, you're going to drive yourself nuts trying to keep everybody. And you don't want to keep everybody. And when you look at people, the front door, back door, a lot of people go, man, you know, the back door is so big. And how do we close the back door? Well, the church is a body, and when you look at a body, there's a front door to a body, and there's a back door to a body, because God says not everything that comes in should stay. Crude analogy, but, you know, and church is the same. Not everybody that comes in the door needs to stay. Some people need to just keep on passing through. And if they're going to pull me out of alignment from God's mission of a healthy marriage and a healthy family, if they're going to put unrealistic demands on me and they're, you can't please them, then you know what? They don't need to stay because they're going to make our culture sick. And so I'm just okay letting people that I can't please, letting them go somewhere else. And so I've learned to to, to make those adjustments. And early on, I empowered volunteers that were part of my leadership team. Uh, They weren't paid, but I just treat them like they were paid. Mm -hmm. And they picked up a lot of that load for me. So in 11 years, I've done less than 10 weddings. I've done less than I've done no more than six funerals, and I don't counsel. There's only a few people that I meet with to counsel, and it's my staff, uh, and that's like my pastoral staff, and then a few key volunteer leaders that are in the church that have significant influence within the ministry. Uh, Apart from that, I I don't do the counseling. And because of that, I go home at 4, I go home at 4.30, I kiss my wife, hug my kids, and have family time. Wow, that's amazing. I, you know, I would love to tackle the developing a strong culture. And unfortunately, today we won't have enough time. So hopefully we can have you back to talk about that. I would love to dive into that. Um, so kind of wrapping up the conversation, I've got two questions left for you. Um, so along this process, um, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but I think oftentimes a lot of young leaders, you know, fresh getting started, think that getting from from A, where they are, to B, where God wants them to be, that it's just a straight line, that it's a straight shot, that it's mm-hmm. it's clean, everything's up and to the right. 
So one of the questions we like to ask is to, to show kind of the opposite of that. What is a, a misstep yeah. or a mistake you made along the way? And despite that, like God has still used you in an amazing way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I could actually talk probably more about failure than success. <laughs> um, you know, for me, what I thought was B, God said, was actually probably Z. And there's a lot of letters in between where mm. you think you should be and, and how I'm going to get you there. And so, um, you know, a statement that, that you know, we, we have within our culture is healthy growth is takes longer and it's harder, but it's more sustainable. So once somebody settles in and commits to the process of the making of a leader, because God can never do more in your church than what he can really do through you as a leader. And so God has spent more time working in me so that he can work through me. And so with that, he's, he's working in my character, he's working in my soul, and he's, he's refining me. And so in the area of, of my expectations, God's really adjusted that whole straight line concept. And uh, there is no straight line. It's more of a wandering. And I don't really re- seem to know what's around the corner, but that's not my job. My job's trust, not knowing everything. So uh, several mistakes that I've made is uh, first uh, was underestimating culture. So I'm going to slip that in for you. And that is uh, I, I, I didn't understand culture. And so what I ended up by creating was a fear-based culture. And so when I walk into a staff meeting and the first questions are, you know, what's the attendance? What was the offering? And then we spend a bunch of time just talking about problems and, you know, what do you need to be doing? Without even me realizing it, I created a performance-based culture that I'm going to love you and reward you if you do well, and you have security as long as you do well. But if you don't perform and you don't produce, you know, you know, look out. And and so it created this sense of unpredictability. One day Eric's happy, next day he's mad. We don't really who. What Eric are we going to get today? Is it you know Dr. Jekyll? Is it Mr. Hyde? You know who is it? Without me realizing it, I ended up creating a fear-based culture, which is toxic. It's not healthy. Fear-based cultures produce a political culture. Uh, you know, we all say, "Oh, we don't like the politics," but really, politics are symptoms of a fear-based culture. When you're in a fear-based culture and a performance-based culture, then you have to watch your back. So now you're throwing somebody else under the bus. And, you know, you're stabbing somebody else in the back. You're making that other staff person look bad so that you can look good to the pastor. So one day I woke up and realized I don't even like my church. I don't even like my staff. And this is about three years in it. We were growing. We were 800 people. But I hated going to church. And I was the pastor. I didn't like hanging out with my staff. And I was the pastor. But at the end of the day, I had to own that. And so as I began to get healthier it took time, but we got the toxicity out of our culture. I began to change, and as I began to change, our culture began to change. And now we have what we describe as a, as a family culture. It's professional, it's organized, yet it's family, and it, it is. There's unity, and and you know I have your back, you have mine. We we don't have a silo mentality. We have a family farm mentality, and it's taken the last seven years to to really build that. And the, the scary thing is it may take seven years to build it, but I can lose it much faster uh, than it took to build it. So every day, every staff meeting, every conversation, I have to just be aware, you know, grace and, and be careful how I say that and package that. And um, 
So that was probably my biggest mistake was fear-based. Wow. Thanks for being so, so open and transparent about that. Um, kind of last question as we wrap up here, looking back over your 11 years, what is one thing you wish someone had told you uh, before you planted or maybe even shortly thereafter? Uh, planting and pastoring is spelled P-A-I-N, pain. And I just totally underestimated the pain of planting a church, the pain of pastoring a church. And I don't know what I was thinking. I got, I guess somehow I thought I was going to be the exception because I was better than everybody else. <laughs> but really, uh, there's there's a lot of pain in leadership. If, if uh, your listeners haven't yet read uh, Dr. Sam Chan's book, Leadership Pain, I highly recommend it to every leader. I, in fact, I bought copy for all my pastoral staff and leadership staff and said, this is a must read. We gave it to some of our key volunteers as well, because uh, your lid is not really even your talent and your ability. It's your tolerance of pain. Once you cap out and you can no longer tolerate pain, that's your lid to your organization, to your ministry, and to your leadership. Wow. That... I've never heard that before. That is, that's amazing. So folks definitely pick up that yeah, book. It's painful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, we'll have that linked up in the show notes for sure. Uh, Pastor Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show, for carving out some time to talk with us. Uh, man, we really, really appreciate it. And if, if anybody wants to get in touch with you or, or learn more about you, what's the best way to go about that? Uh, our website, elementchurch.com, elementchurch.com. Uh, all of our contact information is is on there. Uh, we also partner with ARC, the Association of Related Churches, and anybody that's maybe in the Midwest area. Every quarter we host uh, a an event for churches. Uh, you don't have to be part of a church. You don't have to be a church planter. Uh, if you just want to come and hang out with a bunch of church leaders who love the local church and spend a, a morning together, uh, we invite you to that, and it's a free event. And so we uh, have different speakers and communicators, and we have breakout sessions where we make um, all my key staff available uh, for an hour and a half of Q&A. We feed you breakfast. We feed you lunch. And uh, we just pour into local church leaders. So anybody in the area that wants to catch that, uh, they're welcome to. And uh, they can find those uh, events on our calendar. We actually have one coming up in May, and then we'll have one in August. So about every quarter, uh, we have one of those as well. Uh, also, anybody who wants to uh, get a behind-the-scenes tour of Element Church and what we do behind scenes, uh, we provide um, a tour on a Saturday night where you can bring any of your key team, staff, volunteers. We just coordinate this with you in advance, and you get to sit in the service. Then you get to see all the backs uh, behind the scenes. Uh, usually, uh, they'll get some FaceTime with me after the service where we just do Q&A. Uh, one of my executive team members are also leading that and doing Q&A and just pouring into your team. That's also a free event uh, that we like to make available for, for local churches that uh, want to just see what, what's working for Element. Man, that's awesome. So, so cool. Again, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, really appreciate you stopping by. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Jared. And keep up the great work and God bless uh, all your listeners. Folks, thanks so much for joining us on the Leadership Podcast today. Um, if you would, leave a review on iTunes. Uh, maybe hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. And, uh, you know, just thank you again for stopping by. 
And uh, as always, this show is brought to you by creativesheep.org. You can swing by for all your church media needs. Um, If you're needing something custom, there's a custom button you can hit right there and shoot us an email. Let us know what you're looking for. We'd be happy to get you taken care of there. Um, Plus, we've got all kinds of countdowns, bumpers, uh, openers, different illustrations, all kinds of seasonal content that you can check out over at creativesheep.org. Once again, thanks everybody for listening. We hope our time today inspired you to get better in your leadership journey. Have an awesome, awesome week.